uh, over the last few weeks, it just feels like there's a there's a real deepening hunger for for God. You know, it, it seems like our the more we um, speak about God and the, open our hearts to the Holy Spirit, the deeper our hunger for Him becomes. Um, and I know it's probably already been said, and maybe not worth saying again, but when we offer a prayer like "Come, Holy Spirit," some people say, "Well, doesn't that does doesn't that mean the Holy Spirit was not the Holy Spirit already with us?" And yes, we He is with us. He's He's always been with us. He's with all believers. Um, he indwells us and comes before us and after us, and He's with us. You know, from the moment we say yes to Him. But like any relationship, we can desire to grow closer. We can desire greater levels of of intimacy and proximity. So our knowledge of God is not fully exhausted the moment we meet Him. It's like any relationship. We want to know more. We want we want to go deeper. We want to learn more about who He is. Um, last week during the worship, we were singing that line, um, Holy Spirit, come, Holy Spirit, come. I just had this... I feel like God gave me a wee picture, um, and it's of when I'm reading bedtime stories to Therese before she goes to sleep. She'll come and hop up on the couch next to me, and we'll have the book open, and then she'll kind of shuffle in a bit closer, and then we'll be reading, and she'll worm her way, like kind of contort her body to be as close as she can, and then she's still not satisfied, so she'll like climb over me and climb onto my lap, and it's just this like sense that you know the way a child wants to be closer and closer and closer. I think that's the Holy Spirit prayer that we pray. It's this prayer of saying, Lord, we, we want more of you. We want to be closer to you. We, we want to be right in your pocket, God. We want to be right there with you. And that's why we pray, come Holy Spirit. And that's why we focus on this whole, this whole thing of the Spirit. Um, I've been reading a really great book on the Holy Spirit called Flame of Love. And the author's talking about uh, the way the Holy Spirit doesn't seem to want to be the star of the show. There's a sort of sense in scripture and an experience that the Holy Spirit is gentle and um, you know, doesn't seek a big platform, you know. Um, he writes, the spirit is not as clearly defined for us as Father and Son, because Son becomes visible and renders the Father in the incarnation. Um, it's easier to assign a face to the Son, to Jesus. Uh, than to the spirit because of the historical concreteness of the incarnation. But by comparison, the spirit is less well-defined. Images like dove, water, fire, for example, are evocative, but they don't reveal the face of a person. So the spirit sort of remains, I guess, for us somewhat anonymous. Um, and one, he writes, one often gains the impression that the spirit likes to be viewed as the influence of the risen Lord, not in his own right. We respect that. It's possible that the Spirit wishes to remain mysterious, a wind that cannot be traced, and values the freedom not to be limited by too many images. And then he goes on to say, Spirit does not wish to be focused upon but to remain anonymous, a servant of the economy of salvation. Consumed with its future, he hides his face. The Spirit of love effaces himself in order to bless others. The flame of love is humble and self-effacing, in the presence of the beloved, like a mother in the service of life. Which is such a beautiful picture, I guess, of the Spirit and his character. He's, he's in service to life, like a mother. He's effacing himself, this kind of love which is always pouring out to others, not reflecting back to himself. But, you know, I think 
I think from our own experience, we know this to be true of, of our encounters with the Spirit and its gentleness. And I guess I'm just saying this in the, the sense that as I've been hearing through the series, that there's a sense that, um, that we're being invited to be more and more like children, to be more like, um, you know, to, to want to be closer to Him. That's a good thing to want. It's a good thing. We should, we should yearn for that. And that's why we don't get tired of praying, come Holy Spirit. So just to recap where we've been in terms of what we've covered so far in this series. Um, the first time we talked on the series, I shared a bit of my story, a bit of uh, my story of encountering the Holy Spirit in a real way. Um, not sort of merely in a cognitive way, but in a way that was experiential. And I talked about the way that this was sort of a pattern in Paul's ministry, that he he looked for signs of the Spirit in, in the life of disciples. Um, and... I talked about the way that this might be a good way for us to overcome the tendency um, of religion to become focused on moralistic, therapeutic, deistic ways of thinking. Um, and then we had David McGregor come and he shared some of his stories, some of his you know, really cool stories about relying on the Holy Spirit and um, the Spirit being a guide and an advocate and an empower, and um, he talked about stories of waiting on waiting on the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit illuminating things for him and his friends and seeing things happening, people being healed, wonderful relief for people. And then last week we had Lloyd talking about uh, the nature of spiritual gifts, so gifts as these tangible expressions of God's love for us and for, for the world and the way that uh, the Spirit gives these gifts um, not uh, to be all about ourselves, but that they're really there to be given away. The gift is for the receiver, not for the, the giver, so to speak. And I think that underlies our whole ethos of, of ministry here in the church, in the vineyard, is that we operate primarily from a, an attitude of obedience and service to what God's doing rather than trying to become these great holy anointed people. We're just ordinary people with an extraordinary God who's doing his work and we're just getting good at listening to what he's doing. So this morning I want to carry on by looking at how the Holy Spirit works with us as a communal people. So what he's doing with us together. Because I think sometimes we can fall into, uh, well, habitually fall into a way of thinking where it's always, everything we hear is always filtered through an individual lens. It's about what does this mean for me? Um, but for for the biblical view that the Holy Spirit and what the Holy Spirit does is really to form a people, a people who carry the name of God in the world. Uh, P.T. Forsyth, writing over a hundred years ago, observed that the key theme of the modern age was that people believe they are their own authority, which is amazing. That was a hundred years ago that um, this person... <coughs> Summed it up, people believe they're their own authority. And, you know, well, a lot has changed since, uh, well, he was writing in 1907, before World War I. I think um, we can all identify that this cultural and, and philosophical idea is pretty deeply embedded in our culture. Um, this idea that, um, that the individual is the one who has the source of authority to define what's good and what's right. That it's the individual where, uh, as opposed to the collective, is where authority resides. Um, and as time's gone by and we've kind of gone into the postmodern era, um, we've almost lost faith in the idea of the collective completely. You know, um, this idea that 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 the that there's an objective reality out there, 
Instead, it's all um, contained within and not so much, it's like we've gone from believing that we're the source of our own authority to believing that we can define what's real, that we've actually got the ability to define reality. Um, and Robert Bella calls this expressive individualism, which is a helpful little phrase, I think, to tuck away. Um, this idea that we can express reality. So none of us are immune from this way of thinking. It's just the soup that we're in. It's the world that we're in. Um, it's, we're a bit like the parable of the, the fish who's swimming along and enjoying a nice swim, and then suddenly an, an older fish cruises by and says, hey, fellas, how's the water? And the fish swim, keeps swimming in silence for a minute, and one of them turns to the other and says, what's water? <laughs> That's the water we're swimming in. We don't even see it. However, this season of Pentecost, this, this theme that we're exploring, it offers this wonderful promise um, that we can become formed as a people of his name. It's sort of the cure, if you like, to this problem. Not merely a miscellaneous group of individuals who get together on a Sunday, but a people with a collective identity. And um, yeah, not just any collective people, not just any old group, because that can go really wrong, as we know, um, but a people who carry and represent God, God's name uh, in the world, and his character in the world. And that is what Pentecost is really all about. So let me, let me read it, if I may. Um, from some passage of scripture that we're probably all really familiar with, but here we go, Acts chapter 1. In my former book, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and to teach until the day he was taken up to heaven, after giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen. After his suffering, he presented himself to them and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. On one occasion, while he was eating with them, he gave them this command. Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised, when you've heard me, or what, which you've heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Then they gathered around him and asked, asked him, Lord, are you at, at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, It is not for you to know the times or dates the Father has set by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. After he had said this, he was taken up before their very eyes, and a cloud hid them from their sight, hid him from their sight. While they were looking intently up into the sky as he was going, uh, sorry, they were looking intently up into the sky as he was going, when suddenly two men dressed in white stood beside them. Men of Galilee, they said, Why do you stand here looking into the sky? This same Jesus, who has been taken from you into heaven, will come back in the same way you have seen him go into heaven. Then the apostles returned to Jerusalem from the hill called the Mount of Olives, a Sabbath day's walk from the city. When they arrived, they went upstairs to the room where they were staying. Those present were Peter, John, James, and Andrew, Philip, and Thomas, Bartholomew, and Matthew, James, son of Alphaeus, and Simon the Zealot, 
and Judas, son of James. They all joined together constantly in prayer, along with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. And then skipping ahead to chapter 2, which is about 10 days later in the narrative. When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. Suddenly a sound, like the blowing of a violent wind, came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Now, there were staying in Jerusalem God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. When they heard the sound, a crowd came together in bewilderment because each one heard their own language being spoken. Utterly amazed, they said, Aren't all those who are speaking Galileans? Then how is it that each of us hears them in our own native language? Parthians, Medes, and Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya near Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and converts to Judaism, Cretans and Arabs, we hear them declaring the wonders of God in our own languages, oh, in our own tongues. Amazed and perplexed, they asked one another, what does this mean? What does this mean indeed? It's uh, probably a fairly familiar story, like I said, but I think you know sometimes our familiarity with these things leads to contempt. Um, and I'm speaking for myself here in that I, I think the first time I would have heard this would have been in the Beginner's Bible, Shout out to the Beginner's Bible. Um, my focus as a kid, uh, to be honest, was mainly this image of flames resting on people, uh, which, quite frankly, is a bit scary. Uh, it doesn't sound nice to have a flame resting on you. It sounds hot. And um, Or then of flaming tongues, which was even weirder. Uh, why are there tongues on fire? <laughs> if we, so, so for me, that was my view of this whole picture. Um, I don't know if that's sort of how other people have found it. You know, you've read it, maybe you've heard it many times. What's it all about? So if we're trying to uh, imagine what Luke has, obviously he wouldn't have the Rolling Stones in mind. Um, he would have had a totally different kind of cultural uh, and yeah, metaphorical world at play. And um, so Luke, like all of uh, his Jewish traveling friends, like Paul, for instance, who he traveled with, these guys knew their Old Testaments, back to front, inside out, upside down. They, they were always in the Old Testament. So the Old Testament really gives us the context for understanding this idea of these tongues of fire, these, these tongues uh, and, and fire resting on them. So, um, yeah, this part. So for a start, it's, um, yeah, it's easy to, I guess, connect or conflate maybe the combination of tongues of fire and speaking in other tongues as exactly the same thing. Um, sometimes called glossolalia or speaking in tongues, you know, um, this, this, prayer, this prayer practice of speaking in a language that is not native to you, if you like, a heavenly language, um, which for some is a totally normal part of their devotional life. But if you look carefully, I think that... Uh, I think that there's something else going on here. Perhaps this idea of glossolalia that we have of speaking in tongues is a little different to what was happening 
in this moment. Um, because you notice they're actually speaking in a variety of discernible languages, um, known languages that were readily understandable and intelligible to the crowd outside. This culturally diverse crowd, this, this disciples spill out and they're all speaking the language of all these different ethnicities. So they're not just um, speaking in this devotional um, speaking in tongues language. They're speaking in a way that's proclaiming something out which people are hearing and understanding. Um, now I studied a little bit of German at, uh, at university um, and uh, I'm not going to I'm not going to give you any German words today, but in uh, a little bit of Tereo at uh, high school, and I can very painfully and pitifully slowly try to figure out what's going on when I'm reading a, something German or something Māori. Um, but all of that learning is hundreds of hours in the making. But I wish that I could have the sudden download of language that these people had. How amazing would that be? A little bit like... Uh, Neo learning kung fu in a in a in a moment. Uh, that would be cool. It'd be cool if we could do that. Um, well, look at them go. Because <laughs> that's the impression you get. They're just in the upper room praying, and then all of a sudden they spill out and they're proclaiming God's languages, uh, God's deeds in other languages, without having to do any of their homework. But I think um, God's up to something. I'll move on from that slide, otherwise we'll uh, get a bit distracted. I think that God um, was up to something more than just a cool trick, you know, just a cool trick going on here. I think, um, and if you look at the commentators and, and the smart people who read this stuff, uh, they connect this passage right back through to um, Genesis 11. This passage about Pentecost is really a passage about the undoing of the curse of Babel. So at the Tower of Babel, the whole world had uh, this one language, uh, or as Robert Alter, the Bible translator, puts it, one language, one set of words, this uniformity of speech. And picking up the story from verse 3, it says, And they said to each other, Come, let us, let's bake bricks and burn them hard. And the bricks served them as stone, and bitumen served them as mortar. And they said, Come, let us build us a city and a tower which, with its top in the heavens that we may make us a name, lest we be scattered over all the earth. And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower that the human creatures had built. And the Lord said, As one people with one language for all, if this is what they, can, if this is what they have begun to do, now nothing they plot to do will elude them. Come, let us go down and baffle their language there, so that they will not understand each other's language. And the Lord scattered them from there over all the earth, and they left off building the city. Therefore it is called Babel, for there the Lord made the language of all the earth Babel. And from there the Lord scattered them over all the earth. So at Babel, the whole world has one set of words. Uh, Emilio Alvarez um, says, he sort of sees this as the beginning of the nationalistic way of thinking, as in like, Around here we speak Babylonian, you know, and if you don't speak Babylonian, you can get out. Um, this, this way of thinking, um, this way of cultural superiority. And God's response to Babel was to come down and, and to confuse their language, to make it into Babel. 
So Pentecost is this reversal of Genesis 11. It's not not in the sense, I don't think, not in the sense that God gives us a ability to speak a heavenly language which nobody else can understand, but rather to hear and understand the wonders of God in each other's languages. So contrary to Babel, where uniformity of language masked this uh, underlying um, prideful, divisive humanity, Pentecost shows the diversity of language and the diversity of speech and tongues as an expression of the unity of the Spirit that the Spirit brings. Or as, oh yeah, we've got our own versions of this in our own country. I just thought I'd, um, those are some great documentaries and resources, but you know, uh, this, this idea of uh, a monoculture and a monocultural way of thinking about Christianity and identity. Um, that No Māori Allowed is a good documentary on TVNZ. So, Alvarez puts it like this. He says, Pentecost is the anti-Babel event in the life of the Christian church. And as such, it contradicts and counteracts any divisive monopoly toward a spirituality lacking immersion into cultural and linguistic diversity. In doing so, Pentecost promotes a multi-ethnic, multicultural, and multilingual approach to our Christian faith. So Pentecost offers this sudden explosion, this burst of vision for what it could look like to have a united and diverse community of the Spirit. Um, in the Acts narrative, it's not a human project, unlike in the Babel narrative. This is not something that humans set out to do. It's a divine gift. Uh, and it's not based on a human power grab like it is in Babel. It's based on the recognition for God's power and the need for God's power. As Jesus said, Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my Father has promised, which you've heard me speak about. And it is not for you to know the times or dates the Father has set by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses. So this is a God-initiated thing. It's not a human project. It's not something that we have, are striving towards necessarily. It's something which God plants in us through the Spirit as a people. It's not a utopian project. Um, and it's something which He plants and He tends in partnership with us. So... What's our role, I guess, in all of this? And it may sound a little simplistic, perhaps, but I think a big, a big part of, of remaining open, a big part of, of what it means to be this, you know, to be a picture of, the, of a community where, where, where difference is allowed, where difference is embraced, where there's a multicultural way of thinking and speaking and, ex and expressing who God is. Um, I'm not just talking about different languages here. I'm talking about the, the great big gaps between each other, you know. Our ways of thinking um, can be as enormous as the differences um, between different ethnic groups. Just within a family, you know, I'm talking about this level of unity which the Spirit brings, which allows each language to be and which brings us together. So what's our role? I think it's just remaining open to the Spirit, uh, to the leading of the Spirit, letting Him be the guide and uh, recognizing and celebrating what he's doing and getting involved with it. 
So Pentecost was a communal affair mm. rather than an individual one. It was about communal empowerment rather than individual empowerment. And the fruit of, of Pentecost is really summed up at the end of chapter 2. It says, this is sort of after all of the fireworks, you know. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. So you see there's no lone rangers here. There's no, uh, there's no me, myself, or I. There's no um, his or hers. It's all they and theirs. Um, all the believers together. So this is what the church is. It's this gift that God gives us. It's a gift that's received and expressed collectively by the power of the Holy Spirit. So the Spirit not only um, empowers us to be this, this, this multicultural, multilingual uh, people, but he also, I think, the, the Spirit restores our communal ways of thinking and our communal sensibility. Um, it goes against the pattern of this world, the pattern of individual autonomy. The Spirit is the one who transforms our mind into a collective ways of thinking. Um, so, yeah, it's about communal empowerment. So one of the questions um, which seemed to occupy Paul's mind in particular was, again, like not necessarily how individual people become saved, how they become believers, but rather how this great jumble of different identities can get put, um, can be one. This rabble of Jewish people and Gentile people, of, of men and women, of slaves and free, this great diversity of people, um, the powerful and the weak, how could all of these opposing identities be constituted into one body? How on earth could that ever happen? We know what the world's like, you know, we live in that world. How could this ever really be realized? Um, and his answer was, well, it was because they're constituted into one body through one baptism and one spirit. His answer was that we're made one by being born of the spirit and the same spirit. So again, this, this I, I feel like I'm hammering the point over and over again, but this, this communal sensibility is so difficult for us to grasp. We keep struggling because we keep thinking it's um, something we have to do, but it's something we all have to do. Um, salvation in the New Testament is for the community, it's for churches. Um, it's not to say we don't have individuality, it's to say that our individuality is, finds its home, like those tongues of fire, in the community, in the, in the collective. So, and I think that's the real gift, you know, that's the real gift of, of Pentecost, this deeper identity, not based on the usual identity markers. And um, in addition to the Babel narrative, scholars also see this really rich web of connections between Pentecost and Sinai, as described in Exodus. So both Luke and um, Exodus describe this pattern of an ascent, 
up um, um, during the festival of weeks or Pentecost. So it says in Exodus, you know, um, I didn't put it in there, but the, 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 the ascent up Sinai happens during the festival of the weeks in the third month to meet with God. So Moses goes up Sinai to meet with God and Jesus ascends to be with the Father. And in Exodus, Moses is the one who descends down Mount Sinai with the law, uh, with the covenant and the, tab the tablets. Um, and in Acts, it's the Spirit who descends to write the new covenant on the hearts of the people. So Luke is drawing these really interesting connections, both with Babel and with Sinai. Um, it's a new people of God. It's this new formation of the people of God. And other scholars have pointed out like other interesting little connections like between the different spiritual manifestations and act like like the tongues of fire. So <laughs> the tongues of fire, um, which perplexed me as a child, and the sound of a rushing wind, both of those appear uh, in at Sinai. So uh, a famous Jewish writer from antiquity called Philo, who Luke would have probably read, so Luke uh, outside of the Bible, but a guy contemporary to Luke, uh, he writes commentaries about, about the Old Testament and the way he describes it was that angels were taking what God had said to Moses down the mountain on tongues of fire. So, um, so for Luke, he's, you know, he is assuming that we're reading Philo um, because this is just the world he's in. But, so the, the connection's really clear, but we miss it because we don't, we're not quite so au fait with the Old Testament. But the whole point is that the Acts story is the creation of the people of God. It's the creation of the new people, the covenant community. It's not just empowerment for mission. It's actually formation of a new thing, a new identity. So, um, yeah, this covenantal language, like I say, it's easy to miss. Um, I, I miss it until I go and have to have a read about all these other scholars to find out about it. But Pentecost is really about adoption. So even if we look at this, just... Bear with me, but in Exodus 19, um, this is what it says. Then Moses went up to God. The Lord called to him from the mountain and said, This is what you're to say to the descendants of Jacob and what you're to tell the people of Israel. You yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt and how I carried you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now if you obey me fully and keep my commandments, then out of all nations you'll be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words you're to speak to the Israelites. So the Israelites didn't do anything to earn their salvation, did they? They didn't um, achieve their salvation themselves. God carried them on eagles' wings out of, out of slavery in Egypt. It was his initiative. It was his power. They, he was working in the dark behind, you know, they didn't see any of it. All of a sudden, the exodus was happening. Um, and so it is for us and our salvation. You know, We didn't earn our salvation. God didn't owe it to us. He didn't, um, you know, there was nothing which, which we could claim in the process. It's a gift that he gave us, a gift all the way. God carried us out of our own slavery, out of our own personal slavery, um, through the faithfulness of the Son. The faithfulness of the Son is what carried us into salvation. And then at Pentecost, he adopts us. He calls us to live in right relationship to him and to each other. He creates a new covenant community to be his treasured possession, a kingdom of priests and a holy nation 
sent to proclaim the goodness of God in the particular languages and idioms of our time, of our world, empowered by the Spirit with the words of, of God's glory. God is the one who is doing this. God is the one who, who is all over this process. And he's the one empowering us, pouring out his Spirit into our hearts. So perhaps you're left with a question like, well, what do I do? <laughs> like, how do I... So what? Or how then shall I live? Or um, What do we do with all of this information? And I think, you know, um, if we're honest, I, it might still feel a little bit hard to believe, you know? Like, how do I really um, embrace people who are different to me? Um, how do I get over my tendency to want to shy away from difference, um, to be repelled by people I don't understand or don't get, people who think differently to me, people who vote differently to me, who don't eat what I eat, who don't prefer what I prefer. This was the dividing, these are the dividing axes of our lives. They are the things which split us up, which cut against community. And this is what the Spirit is, is all about pouring out and um, remedying. How can we as a church um, embrace this season of Pentecost, really embrace it and, and desire more direct encounters with God? But go beyond that, you know, not just direct encounters of God, but go beyond that to see what it's really about, um, the social and cultural dynamics that are going on in our church, in our society, to be that witness of that community where there's all of these different expressions of these different identities which are being knit together. And, you know, it might seem obvious or it might seem like a cop-out, but I just come back to Jesus' promise in, in Acts 1.8. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on upon you. You will receive power. We can't do this. This is not Babel. This is not a project. This is a God-initiated thing. And what did the disciples, what was they asked to do? They are asked to wait. They wait, you know. Wait till he received power. Now, final few thoughts here. But um, power is a bit of a dirty word, isn't it? It's a, it's a, and rightly so. It's a word which which maybe raises the raises our heckles when we hear it. Um, and you know, I wonder what it meant to these Galilean fishermen when Jesus said this. You know, you will receive power. Wonder what that meant to them. They lived in a world where power grew out of the hilt of a sword. That was what power was. And they knew they didn't have any power. They were just, they were nobodies. But Jesus said, you will receive power. That was the promise. You know, I think um, today many Christians, maybe even in our own hearts, want, want power, you know. Um, we, we seem to want more power. We want influence. We want clout, you know, we want to be able to change things. Um, but too often it just looks like Babel. It just ends up looking like Babel when we get power. So I think Pentecostal power is different. It's a totally different kind of power. This is a power which belongs to the weak things of the world. This is a power which belongs to the foolish things, the insignificant things. This little group of believers huddled together in an upper room, somewhere on Great North Road. <laughs> God's power came upon them. And 
the world has never been the same since. The world has never been the same since God's power came upon this weak little group of people and empowered them for mission and made them into a community of the Spirit. So this is the way. This is the way. The way in, as we said, as we like to say, the way in is the way on. The way in is through the power of the Spirit. The way on is through the power of the Spirit.